You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Edmonton is the capital city of the province of Alberta in Canada. Europeans arrived there in the mid-1700s, and eventually the area became the center of a rivalry between two fur trading companies, the Hudson Bay Company and the Northwest Company. When the two companies merged in 1821, Edmonton became the main distribution and service center for the Western fur trade. In more modern times, Edmonton's economy has been dominated by the production of oil. The discovery of oil in 1947 stimulated the city's growth and made it the petrochemical center for Western Canada. Mark Twitchell was an Edmonton native who wanted to become a filmmaker. Gradually, though, Mark's life went from making the stories through film to making the stories in real life. This is Monsters. Mark Twitchell was born on July 4, 1979, in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Settle down, Americans. They don't have that holiday there. Mark's father, Norman, worked as a maintenance man for the office buildings downtown, and his mother, Mary, was a graphic artist. Mark had a younger sister named Susan. Mark described his childhood as being textbook. They lived in the north end of Edmonton, and people who knew Mark said he always wanted to be the center of attention, but the attention that he got was usually in the form of bullying. He had big ears, glasses, and enjoyed comic books and science fiction, something that got you labeled as a nerd back then. He spent his free time recording sketches on a video camera. He would do parodies of things like turn the comic book character Judge Dredd into Judge Fred, the Fred being Fred Flintstone. He turned Wheel of Fortune into Wheel of Torture. He became near-obsessed with writing and creating videos. After high school, he began attending the North Alberta Institute of Technology in a diploma program for radio and television production. After he graduated, he met a woman online named Megan, and he moved to the United States where the two got married. Mark explained that he was hoping to get an American work visa, but doesn't sound like it ever happened. The couple lived in both Iowa and Illinois, where Mark would spend most of his time on the internet. Megan said that he would make fake profiles of women and spend his time messing with men online. She also said that shortly after they got married, he asked her if she ever thought of killing someone. 
He told her that he had thought about finding a homeless person to kill so nobody could connect him to it. After four years, Megan found out that Mark had cheated on her multiple times and was a compulsive liar. She said he lied about things that weren't a big deal, like she'd ask him if he paid a bill and he'd say yes. Then she'd get a call about the bill being past due and have to take care of it. This prompted her to file for divorce. Mark moved back to Edmonton, and it was less than a year before he met and married another woman he had met online. His second wife, Jess, was a few years older and she had a university degree. He had actually forgotten about their first date and she called him from the restaurant, wondering why he wasn't there. Even with the initial hiccup, they began dating and Mark proposed after a few months. They had their honeymoon in Costa Rica, and soon, Jess was pregnant. In the time since the divorce from his first wife, Mark had become obsessed with Star Wars and began working on a fan film called Secrets of the Rebellion. He spent two summers shooting the film at his old college in front of a green screen. He put $60,000 of his own money into the film and worked with help from a local community of Star Wars fans. Since then, Mark had written a script for another film called Day Players, a buddy comedy about film extras. He needed to find 3D artists to work on finishing his fan film, and he needed to find funding for his next film. At the end of January of 2008, Jess gave birth to a baby girl who they named Chloe. Mark had worked in sales while he was struggling to break into the film industry. He had worked for a company selling IT services to corporate clients, but he was fired for basically not working. His work email account hadn't been touched in three months. He moved to a job selling home security systems, but he believed he would be better off raising funds for his movie full-time. He made presentations to multiple investors and had raised some money from friends and relatives. He told Jess about his plan to quit his job, and she was not so confident that it was the right move. They had a newborn baby to take care of, and she suggested he wait until funds were more secure to leave his job. Mark considered his wife's advice and figured out a way to make them both happy. He quit his job and just didn't tell her. Problem solved. He was sure that being able to spend all of his time fundraising would allow him to get his new movie fully funded in a matter of weeks. A few months later, no new investors had signed up for his project. Tell me you didn't see that one coming. Mark was now leaving their rented townhouse in the morning under the guise of going to work and just driving around or spending time at his parents' house while they were at work. He was now living off the money that friends and family had given him to make the movie. Since Jess believed that Mark still had a job, she was pushing to buy a house. The townhouse they rented was near train tracks and the noise was getting unbearable. He wouldn't qualify for a mortgage without a job, but he couldn't tell Jess that, so he did the next best thing. He lied to the bank. Problem solved. He bought a cheap prepaid phone and put that number down on the mortgage application as his employer's number. When they called to verify his employment, Mark answered and claimed to be his boss. Then, he moved money from his production company into his personal checking account and altered the statement to make it look like it came from a job. He paid a down payment with money that should have gone to make his movie, and they were able to purchase a small house in St. Albert, just northwest of Edmonton. In the basement of the house, Mark set up an office and he put a mattress down there on the floor. Jess slept in the bedroom upstairs and the couple seemed to be living separate lives in the same house. Mark's obsession had moved from Star Wars to Dexter. It was a show on television about a serial killer trying to live a normal life in society. The main character, Dexter Morgan, had an internal need to kill, 
but in order to be more, I guess, ethical about it, he only killed people who were bad. Other killers, child abusers, rapists, etc. In September of 2008, Mark decided to use the dwindling funds he had secured for his buddy comedy to make a short horror film. The film, called House of Cards, would be about a hockey mask-wearing serial killer who lured a cheating husband to a garage by posing as a woman online. Once in the garage, the cheater is hit with a stun baton and tied up. Eventually, the victim is killed and dismembered. Mark spent about a month preparing for the film. He rented a detached garage in a residential area. He built props and bought a stun baton, which wasn't legal to purchase in Canada, so he bought one from someone online and had them ship it from the U.S. He put casting calls online and found actors to play the serial killer and the victim. The actors would be working for free in this film, but Mark promised them roles in Day Players, which he told people would be starring Alec Baldwin, though there was no record that the A-list celebrity had anything to do with the project. The short horror film was shot in the garage over two days near the end of September. With a rented digital camera and some low-budget effects, House of Cards was shot and ready for editing. The production of his horror film was not just to get a complete short film on his resume. Mark was also using it as a means of building his own Dexter-like kill room. He had friends build a large, six-leg stainless steel table and a metal chair. He had acquired the stun baton, handcuffs, and knives that he could use for his next plan. Not another horror movie, but a real-life horror. In his basement office, he got on a dating site and found pictures of an attractive blonde woman. He downloaded three pictures and then set up a new dating profile that he knew would lure in the star of his next project. During this time, Mark was spending a lot of time on internet dating sites, not just for his new project, but for himself as well. One day, Jess had come into the house through the basement door and saw what was displayed on his computer screen. Mark was on the phone and hadn't noticed her come in. She suddenly yelled, quote, Get off the fucking phone! End quote. Mark spun around to see his wife staring at him, sitting at his computer with a website for a dating service that specializes in matching people who want to have extramarital affairs. Mark, a seasoned liar, had no problem brushing off the accusation that he was cheating. He told Jess that he was writing a freelance article for an online publication about internet dating. Even though he gave that explanation immediately without thinking about it, she was still suspicious. Mark told her that he was going to have a conference call with the editor and she was welcome to listen in. Jess asked what his name was and Mark immediately answered, Phil Porter. There are people in this world that are so comfortable lying that they can do it without even stopping to think. Some people are terrible liars and when presented with a question they don't want to answer truthfully, they have to pause and there's lots of uhs and ums. Mark was not that person. He could spat off a lie on the spot without a second thought. This isn't always a bad thing. People who are great at improv are using the same skill. They just use it for entertainment instead of deceit. Two days after catching her husband on an internet dating site, Jess sat in the living room as Mark talked on the phone to a man who identified himself as Phil Porter. Mark had used the two days to go out, buy a prepaid phone, then he hired an actor not only to play the part of Phil Porter during the meeting with Jess listening in, he also had him record an outgoing message on the phone's voicemail just in case Jess tried to call him. She wasn't completely convinced, but couldn't prove he was lying. She remained suspicious and the couple continued sleeping separately. Mark had recognized that he lacked empathy and instead of working to repair that negative trait, he embraced it. He made a conscious decision to become a serial killer. 
Mark was the type of guy who needed to dramatize everything, so he began writing about his transformation in a journal. He titled it SK Confessions, and it begins, This is the story of my progression into becoming a serial killer. Like anyone just starting out in a new skill, I had a bit of trial and error in the beginning of my misadventures. Allow me to start from the beginning, and I think you'll see what I mean. I don't remember the exact place and time it was that I decided to become a serial killer, but I remember the sensation that hit me when I committed to the decision. It was a rush of pure euphoria. I felt lighter, less stressed, if you will, at the freedom of the prospect. There was something about urgently exploring my dark side that greatly appealed to me, and I'm such a methodical planner and thinker, the very challenge itself was enticing to behold. Though he kept most of what he was doing a secret for obvious reasons, he did admit to Jess that he didn't think he could feel empathy like other people. It came as a shock to her that her husband and the father of her child couldn't feel empathy. After a long conversation, Jess suggested he get therapy. Mark agreed, and not long after, he told her that he had set up an appointment with a psychiatrist. He said his first appointment was on October 3rd. Gilles Tetro met Pamela in 2002, and the couple married soon afterward. They lived in Saskatchewan and owned a hair salon together. Pamela was a hairstylist, and Gilles did the accounting and marketing. The business being a success, they thought they could do the same thing with a different business. A few years into their marriage, they moved to British Columbia and started a stucco business. Unfortunately, it didn't have the same success, and soon the couple were each working multiple jobs. Around 2008, Pamela was visiting friends in Edmonton when she was offered a job. She took the offer, and after selling their house, Jill made the journey to join her. Once back together, Pamela chose to end the relationship. Jill said it took him by surprise, but eventually he managed to get past it and back into the dating pool. Not only had he been in a relationship for six years, but he was also fairly new to the Edmonton area. He wasn't sure where to meet women or where to take them if he succeeded. In the summer of 2008, Jill signed up for some online dating sites. After a few trial and errors, he found one that seemed promising and put together a profile hoping to attract a woman with similar interests. At the beginning of October, Jill came across a profile under an account titled Spiderwebs. The profile belonged to an attractive, blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman named Sheena. Her profile stood out because she said she had also recently moved to Edmonton from British Columbia. When he noticed that her profile was active, meaning that she was currently logged into her account, he took the chance and sent her an instant message. Sheena responded right away, and the two seemed to hit it off. After a few minutes of chatting, Sheena asked Jill if he had any plans for the weekend. When he said that he didn't, she suggested that they get together. Sheena suggested that on Friday, October 3rd, they go to dinner and a movie. She told him that she liked to go to dinner first to help avoid all the junk food at the theater, which actually isn't a bad idea. She also picked Joey's Global Grill and Lounge for a meal before they went and saw Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. By this point, Jill was so excited to have actually found success on a dating site that he was down for anything. She seemed like a confident woman who knew what she wanted, and he liked that. In his excitement over the date, Jill ignored some red flags that were raised when Sheena sent instructions on where to pick her up. She told him that she lived in a basement apartment and that he would have to go through a detached garage to get there. She said there was no parking allowed in the front of the house and the only way to get to her apartment was through the backyard. 
The gate into the backyard was padlocked, so she would leave one of the garage doors partially open and he could duck in there and make his way into the apartment. Seems perfectly normal, right? Instead of sending him an address, she sent him directions to the garage in the alley and when he asked for her phone number in case he got lost, she refused. She said that she didn't give out her address or phone number for safety reasons, but she gave him directions right to her apartment. Jill was confused, but not put off enough to cancel the date. Mark was just as excited for the date, but his excitement was at the prospect of a different release at the end of the night. He purchased duct tape, plastic, and disposable coveralls. He covered the ceiling with plastic and draped it down the walls. He covered the floor with a green tarp and readied his killing tools. He used a sheet to separate the two halves of the garage. This way, when his victim entered one side of the dark garage, he wouldn't immediately see Mark or his prepared kill room. On Friday, Jill left work and hurried home where he changed his clothes and headed south to Sheena's apartment. The directions got him there with no problem and he saw that the bay door on the right side of the garage was open partway. He ducked into the garage, expecting to cut through to the man door on the other side where he would cut across the backyard to the door to Sheena's apartment. Instead, someone grabbed him from behind and began punching him in the back of the head. The attacker jammed a black stick into his chest and a blue light started flashing as soon as he pushed a button. The stun baton sent 800,000 volts of electricity through his body and immediately weakened all of his muscles. As he finally turned to see who was attacking him, he was horrified to see someone in a black and gold painted hockey mask with a black hood pulled up over his head. It was clear that he was not just attacked while on the way to a date, he had been set up. He fought to free himself from the attacker's grasp, but as soon as he'd break free, the man was on top of him again, hitting him with the stun baton. When Jill did manage to get some distance from the man in the hockey mask, the attacker put down the stun baton and pulled out a gun. He ordered Jill to lie down on the ground with his arms behind his back, and since he didn't know if the gun was real or not, he decided to comply. Jill told the man that he could have his wallet and truck if he let him live. He promised not to say anything. The man pulled a piece of duct tape off of a roll and put it over his victim's mouth. Mark wrote down his exact plans in the journal. He described his process of setting up fake accounts by using software to block his IP address, then using the pictures he had downloaded from profiles of women in different parts of the world. He wrote, I always change things up. I never use the same profile for more than one victim at a time, and I generate new email addresses as well, just in case. After a victim is removed from the world neatly and cleanly, I erase my accounts and every trace they left behind. Sure, the mother servers may or may not have an imprinted image, but even if they checked, they wouldn't trace me. As soon as the profiles go up, within 24 hours, the responses come in like a flood. I review the messages sent and choose my victims based on age, body type, profession, status, and living situation. Obviously, I'm not going to pursue a six foot four inch athletic martial arts instructor who's married with four kids. That's just got trouble written all over it. I mean, I'm ruthless, but I'm not an idiot. I have my own fight training background, but I don't have delusions of grandeur. When I come across a single man in his late 30s to early 40s who is self employed, lives alone, and stands between 5 foot 7 inches and 5 foot 11 inches, with an average body type weighing in between 150 and 180 pounds, I know I've found my ideal target. The journal continues, even including his attack on Gilles, though he calls him Frank in the journal. He wrote, My kill room was perfectly prepped. 
plastic sheeting taped together around my table, a large green cloth screwed into the drywall ceiling to shield view of it from my guest's line of sight, and to shield me too, of course. I now stood but a few feet away from the front door, which I had locked, of course. The plan was to wait in the shadow of my curtain until he approached the door and shock him with the stun baton, followed by a sleeper hold that would sap away his consciousness so that I could tape him up and set him on my table. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now, looking for impaired drivers on our roads, to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe, and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life, or someone else's, forever. Drive sober, or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Gilles knew that he was no longer in the middle of a mugging. His attacker was clearly going to kill him if he didn't do something. He ripped the tape off his eyes and jumped to his feet. When the masked man held the gun out towards him and ordered him to get back on the ground, Jill grabbed the weapon and instantly could tell it was fake. Jill's fear evaporated and he knew that it was time to fight back hard. He tried to punch the man in the stomach, but there was no power behind his punch. He didn't know it at the time, but though the stun baton hadn't immobilized him like Mark thought it would, it still zapped all of the energy out of his muscles. Gilles was finally able to position himself just right to slip out of his jacket as the attacker had a hold of it and fell to the floor right by the still partially opened garage door. He slipped underneath and was on the gravel driveway. When he tried to get up, his legs didn't work. Just like with his punches, the muscles in his legs had been affected by the electrical current from the stun baton. As he tried to crawl down the driveway, the attacker grabbed one of his legs and tried to drag him back inside. Jill was able to break free again and force himself to get to his feet to get away from the nightmare situation. As he got down the driveway, he saw a couple out walking their dog and he yelled at them for help. The couple looked at him in shock and weren't sure what to do. Just as Jill was lured into a trap, this couple pondered if they were being set up the same way. Jill said, quote, There's a guy after me. He's trying to mug me. Please help. End quote. Suddenly, the man in the hockey mask got to the end of the driveway and stopped shocked to see other people there. Then he partially pulled up his mask and started saying, Come on, Frank, and waving him over like they were friends just messing around. The couple, thoroughly freaked out, began walking away. Jill pleaded with them to at least help him get back to his truck, but they refused. Finally, the attacker gave up and disappeared back into the garage. Jill was able to get himself back into his truck and drove himself home. The couple were unsure if anyone was really hurt back in the alley, so when they got home, they called the police. 
The police came out, and they took them to the spot where they encountered the man asking for help and the man in the hockey mask, but the garage was closed and nobody was around. They all shrugged it off. Mark wrote in his journal, I don't know why I played it as cool as I did. Maybe it was something Frank said during the skirmish about swearing not to tell anyone if I let him go. Maybe it was my own instincts about reading people and the fear in his eyes that told me deep down he wouldn't report the incident, but I felt okay. I still packed any gear up of my own and his stray jacket into a bag. Whatever I felt like keeping, I cleaned prints off of and tossed the rest in a dumpster. As a final touch, I sent one last warning email to Frank through the dating site telling him that I traced his IP address through his messages and that if he did report me, I would hunt him down where he lives when he least expects it and finish what I started. I threw in a line about having cased the garage, that it wasn't even mine, and that I never used the same location twice. My last lie was to tell him he was lucky number 18 on my spree. I wasn't sure if I should believe it worked. I walked calmly out to my car, got in, and drove away, across the entire city, back to my home where my wife and child waited for me. During the entire trip, I kept thinking surely this douchebag would call the police. Not that it mattered if he did. I covered my tracks well. Frank, meaning Jill, never contacted the police. It wasn't based on a promise that he made to his potential killer. He was simply too embarrassed. He had managed to get about halfway home when he pulled over into a church parking lot and took a rest. He got some fresh air and drank a bottle of water. Then he laid down in his truck and passed out for about 15 minutes. When he got home, he was able to see just how swollen his face was. He grabbed some frozen vegetables from the freezer to help with the swelling and fell back asleep in his bed. At about 10.30 p.m., Jill woke back up and thought he should get online and try to get some information in case he did decide to go to the police. It looks like he never got the email warning that Mark had sent him through the dating site because when he logged back in, all of their communications had been deleted. When he searched for spider webs, it was gone. Mark had erased any trace of Sheena from the site. Though he thought about calling the police and was encouraged to by his ex-wife when he told her about the incident, he ultimately chose not to. First, he was embarrassed about using an online dating site, which was still pretty stigmatized in 2008. He was also embarrassed by some of the obvious red flags that he had ignored, and by the mistakes he had made, like not telling anyone where he was going and not insisting on meeting in a public place. All because he was excited to go on a date with a pretty woman. All Jill wanted to do was forget the whole thing happened and move on with his life. So he did. The swelling on his face had gone down, so he was able to start going back to work without anybody noticing. Over the coming days, though, the bruising became darker and more noticeable, so he was forced to tell more people what had happened. Though more people were pushing Gilles to go to the police, he continued to agree at first, but the embarrassment always won in the end. As Mark traveled back home, he thought about what might happen if Gilles did call the police. Surely it would take them more than an hour to respond to the report and track down who had rented the garage. Still, he prepared for the possibility that he could arrive home to see cop cars. He wrote in his journal, I practiced my entire behavior pattern should I come home to police cruisers parked along my front yard. I would rush the door in a panic, and upon entering or being stopped by patrolmen, I would appear utterly surprised and beg them to know if anything had happened to my precious wife and or daughter. My genuine shock of their presence would start me on the innocent path in their eyes, and then my cover story of being at a therapy appointment would become my short-term alibi. Obviously, Mark told Jess that he was going to therapy on October 3rd to have an excuse to not be home while he attempted his first kill. 
I guess he also thought the alibi would work with the police as well, though I can't imagine them not immediately trying to contact the non-existent therapist in order to verify his alibi. It seems like he thought the alibi would buy him some time to come up with another lie, but I guess he's shown that he's not really the smartest criminal out there. The following Thursday, Mark got online and set up a new dating profile. A new woman with a new name and different pictures. This time he was Jen, a 30-something brunette who was looking for a quote-unquote intimate encounter. Jonathan Altinger was born on April 28, 1970 in Edmonton, Alberta. When he was a teenager, his family moved to White Rock in British Columbia just north of the Canadian-U.S. border. His father was an automotive upholsterer and had his own shop in their new city. His love of cars spilled over to his younger son and Johnny became a car lover himself. Johnny became an adult as the internet was just starting to take over the world. As a lover of computers and video games, he took to the message boards through a dial-up connection and communicated with other like-minded people. In his early adult years, he lived in the Vancouver area and worked at a pharmacy warehouse. When his father died in 1995, he moved back into his childhood home to help take care of his mother. In 1998, Johnny decided to move back to Edmonton and become a helicopter pilot. Unfortunately, the helicopter lessons were too expensive, and he eventually took a job in quality control at a machine shop. At one point, Johnny had almost gotten married, but she wanted to start a family, and Johnny was not interested in having children. It was the main reason that the relationship ended, and Johnny sold the engagement ring online. He spent some time working on himself after his breakup trying meditation and herbal teas that were meant to cause a hallucinatory effect. He went to a hypnotherapist and believed that he had been visited by his spirit guide. After some time re-evaluating his own life, he started dating again, usually with women he met online. The few dates he had been on went okay, but he hadn't met the right woman quite yet. Most of the women didn't share his interest in New Age philosophy and meditation. On Friday, October 10th, Johnny was sitting at his computer, flirting with a woman he had just met online. He had a four-day weekend away from his night shift job at the machine shop. He had some various plans for the long weekend, but was hoping to fill in some of his free time with a date or two. The woman on the computer, Jen, had seemed interested in getting together. She told him she would like for him to come to her house, and for safety reasons, he could arrive in the alley behind her house and then she could see him before she lets him come the rest of the way. She claimed to have really good first instincts about people, and if she approved of him, he could come inside and play. She then suggested that he pack for a few days. Johnny didn't hesitate to take her up on her offer of a multi-day intimate encounter and let her know that he was in. Jen explained that the gate to her backyard was locked and that he should come in through the partially opened garage door. He was instructed to come through the garage and then close the garage door as he got to the man door on the other side of the garage. The message also said, quote, I have a friend coming over to use part of it as a workshop this weekend, so he blanketed off where my car usually goes. Like I need red spray paint on my car, right? Don't ask. End quote. Later that day, Johnny's friend, Willie, sent him an instant message asking if he had plans for the evening. Johnny didn't hesitate to announce his date with Jen and that he was going to get lucky. Then he told Willie that she had sent him some weird directions to her house instead of giving him an address. Willie said it seemed odd and told him to send him a text message with the address when he got there. 
Mark had adjusted his plan to avoid the mistakes that he had made with his first victim, but Johnny was also avoiding some of the mistakes that Jill had made. He forwarded the directions that Jen sent him to his friend Willie. Johnny was early to the garage and Mark was nearly caught. Johnny's red 2005 Mazda 3 hatchback rolled by the garage and Mark switched off the light as quickly as he could and got into position. When Johnny finally pulled into the driveway and then ducked into the garage, he only took a few steps inside before calling out, Hello? Mark tried to remain silent and hoped the man would continue to his fake date, but Johnny didn't move. Finally, Mark quickly took his mask off and flipped the light on. He told the visitor that he was a filmmaker and was just setting up the garage to use as a movie set. His story matched what Jen had told him online, but he was still suspicious. Mark told him his name and explained that he had made the Star Wars fan film, but Johnny said he had never heard of it. Mark explained that Jen wasn't home yet and said she'd be home in about a half an hour. Johnny said he'd be back before hopping in his car and driving off. Johnny drove back home, on the phone with a different friend, Dale, telling him about what had transpired. At home, he went online and sent a message to Jen through the dating site. Soon, she responded, apologizing for the delay and asking if he wanted to come back. Johnny did. He fired off an email to Dale saying he was going back to Jen's house and left. When he pulled back up to the garage, it was still partially opened. When he ducked inside, he saw that Mark was still there. The two men exchanged nods of recognition as Johnny continued to the other side of the garage. Mark wrote in his journal, he refers to John as Jim. The room filled with the echo of the pipe crashing into the back of his skull as I could feel my predator self take over. That one single motion was the end-all be-all. I had committed now and there was no going back. The jig was up and it was kill or get arrested for aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, maybe even attempted murder. I won't go to jail for an almost, but the son of a bitch didn't drop like the sack of potatoes I was expecting. Are you serious? I asked myself. I continued thwacking Jim over the head repeatedly, but it only seemed to fuel his adrenaline too. John yelled out for police before Mark got in one more hit that knocked him to the floor. He was still conscious, though, and he began offering money if he'd just let him go. Mark hit him again with the galvanized steel pipe that he had wrapped in duct tape. This gave Johnny a rush of adrenaline, and he said, quote, I've had enough of this, end quote, and he tried to grab the pipe away from Mark. Mark pulled out a hunting knife and stabbed Johnny in the stomach. Mark described Johnny's reaction in his journal. His reaction was pure Hollywood. The lurch forward with the grunt was dead-on TV movie of the week. Mark plunged the knife into Johnny's neck and let him bleed out on the floor. He noted that the killing happened off of the plastic sheet, so he would have to clean up the blood even though he had prepared a kill room. Then he noticed that the garage door was still partially open and wasn't sure if someone had seen the attack and called the police. He closed the garage and waited it out to see if sirens would start piercing the quiet night air. He began formulating a plan which we could only assume would have something to do with self-defense, but he would never need it. Nobody saw. Nobody called police. Mark was in the clear. He wrote a very detailed description of what he did with Johnny's body. He wrote that he got him on the table and worked from the feet up. He cut off his pants and shirt but left his socks and shoes in place. He cut the legs at the knees and then again at the hips, placing the parts in garbage bags. He cut the arms at the elbows and the shoulders, first cutting off his fingertips before putting the parts in garbage bags. 
Once the body parts were in garbage bags, he began cleaning the inside of the garage. Most of his plastic didn't actually catch the blood spatter. He used ammonia to wipe blood spatter off the walls, the garage door, and the floor. There was a giant pool of blood that had been partially soaked up by Johnny's jacket, and Mark pulled down the sheet that was stapled up as a divider and threw it on the pool as well. Eventually, he got all of the cleanup done and moved Johnny's car into the garage, but he was still covered in blood. He had a change of clothes in his car, but it would be hard to get all of the blood off of his face and he would definitely smell like blood. In his journal, he noted what he should do the next time. It read, Next time, the whole room gets bubbled, not just half for my kill room. I had used a plastic sheet normally chosen to cover living room furniture when painting walls, but it obviously didn't suffice. This time, I used a single layer of mid-grade quality stuff. Next time, I would double layer the high-grade material for sure. Next time. Mark arrived home after Jess was asleep. He crept into the house and made his way down to the basement, where he had his bed, office, and his own bathroom with shower. He showered himself before dumping all of his bloody clothes, including his shoes, into the washer and went to bed. A few days later, Mark got up at 5 o'clock in the morning and used Johnny's keys to enter his condo. He pocketed some cash that was on his dresser and searched through the drawers, making sure to leave things looking the way they were. He turned on the computer and was happy to find that Johnny had left all of his counts logged in. He got to work trying to make it look like Johnny had just run off. Then he took his victim's laptop and his printer. He said he knew that Johnny had printed out the directions to his garage, and he knew that police would be able to recover that file from the printer's memory. He didn't know that Johnny had sent a copy of the directions to Willie. Johnny's friends started noticing that he hadn't communicated with them all weekend. Dale hadn't gotten Johnny's email that he was going back to Jen's house until the next day. Willie noticed that Johnny hadn't been on MSN Messenger for a few days, but he typed a message that he would be able to see the next time he logged in. It read, quote, How's it going? You still at that chick's place? End quote. By Sunday night, Dale knew something was wrong and started the process of finding out what had happened to his friend. He went to Johnny's place and knocked on the door, but got no answer. He saw that his car was gone and went around the back to check the patio door. It was locked and there was no movement inside. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. 
Their worry was elevated when they finally did hear back from Johnny on Monday, October 13th. He responded to Willie's instant message and told him that he and Jen had hit it off. He told his friend that they were planning on taking a tropical vacation together. Soon after, his friends received emails from Johnny saying that he had met an amazing woman named Jen who was taking him to Costa Rica for a couple of months. Costa Rica, the same place Mark and Jess celebrated their honeymoon. After that, a resignation letter was sent to his employer. Then his social media account became active. His relationship status changed to in a relationship, and he announced that he would be in Costa Rica for a few months. None of this sounded like Johnny, and Dale knew that. He went to the police to file a missing persons report, but they wouldn't take it. He was a middle-aged guy who was running off with a woman. As far as they were concerned, good for him. Over the next few days, more of Johnny's friends came together to try to figure out what really happened to him. Eventually, Dale went back to his condo and found a window that was unlocked. When he and some other friends went inside, they found all of his clothes and all of his luggage still inside. They found his personal items and his shaving kit, but it was when they found his passport that they knew he was definitely not in Costa Rica. They had finally found some evidence that got the police to actually investigate his disappearance. They opened a missing persons file, and Willie told them that Johnny had emailed him the directions to his date that night, so a couple of patrol officers stopped by to take a look. The garage was locked, and the people who lived in the house were also renters. Their rent didn't include the garage, and they didn't know anything about it. They were able to provide the contact information for the property manager. On October 18th, Constable Christopher Maxwell called Mark on his cell phone to confirm that he had rented a garage on the south side of the city. He wanted to know the last time he had been there, and Mark told him, Friday the 10th. The constable asked if he had seen a man there, a red car there, or if any women that were there planned on meeting a man. Mark answered no to all of those questions. The constable asked him to meet him at the garage, and Mark agreed. At the garage, Constable Maxwell was there with another officer and a woman who was their supervisor. When they went around to the other side of the garage, Mark claimed that there was a padlock on the door that wasn't his. The latch was screwed in from the outside, and it was easy enough to just pull a few screws and release the latch. Then Mark unlocked the deadbolt with his key. Inside, the officers could smell gas and something had been burnt. They saw the large table that looked like it should be in a medical examiner's office and a bunch of cleaning supplies sitting on the floor. They also found a receipt for a purchase at a local hardware store for plastic sheeting, rubber gloves, paper towels, and a bottle of heavy-duty cleaner. The date on the receipt was October 15th, and the purchase had been paid for with a credit card. In the time since he killed Johnny, Mark had taken a 50-gallon metal barrel and the body parts out to his parents' house while they were away and attempted to burn the body. Like most things he had done during his attempt to become a serial killer, he vastly underestimated what it took to completely burn a body. He gave up, packed all of the body parts back into garbage bags, and took it all back to the garage. Eventually, he cut the body parts up even more and put them into new garbage bags and loaded them into his car. He drove around looking for a place to dump the parts before settling on the sewer. He found a secluded area with a sewer manhole and dumped out the bags. Then he took the remaining evidence back to his parents' house and burned it all. When they left the garage, they told Mark to sit in a police cruiser and fill out a witness statement. While in the car, 
Constable Maxwell asked if he could see Mark's credit cards. Mark hesitated, but eventually pulled out a MasterCard and handed it to the officer. The last four digits of Mark's card matched the receipt. Mark had clearly been at the garage after October 10th. It was nearly 3 o'clock the following morning when Mark was brought into the Southwest Police Station for an interview. He spent the first half of the interview talking in great detail about the movies he's made and the movies he was planning to make and how many investors he had. He claimed to be just about done raising $3.5 million and would soon be making his buddy comedy, Day Players, which wasn't even close to being true. Once he was done hosting the Mark Twitchell show, the detective clarified when exactly he had been to the garage last. So back again, so we're talking about back in the garage, and you're saying that the temp was the last time that you were at the garage. Yeah. And you can say that absolutely mm, for sure. No, I... It was either a couple of days before or a couple of days after that I dropped off some, some cleaning stuff. It was like a Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that. Tuesday or Wednesday, yeah. you dropped off some cleaning stuff. Yeah. Now, when's your next plan to shoot there? Oh, it's not decided yet. Not decided yeah. yet. It's still up in the So air. there's no, nothing planned for that garage. No. You live in St. Albert. You'd be concerned about dropping off a few cleaning supplies there at the garage when nobody else is there sometime between that weekend and it had to be done right away. Well, not necessarily right away. The way that I do it again, it's on a list. So I would have had like a line, long list of lines of stuff that I'm getting done that day and it just happened to be one of them. So it's like a stop yeah. off, drop it off, and then go. Now Mark claims he was definitely there October 10th, but he thinks he stopped by a few days later to drop off some cleaning supplies. The detective is clearly suspicious because Mark's house is on the other side of the city. Not a quick trip. Why would he drive all the way to the garage just to drop off some cleaning supplies? Mark tries to play it off, but it just doesn't make sense. The detective asks him what kind of supplies they keep in the garage, and Mark lists off the props, a set of knives, duct tape, swords, basically everything you would expect someone to have if they were going to kidnap and kill someone. It seems quite coincidental. Now, it's, uh, me, uh, I'm just thinking about this. I mean, it's kind of odd that you're filming that kind of thing. Mm. And we end up going to that garage because of a missing person yeah. who supposedly went there. That's really freaky, too. And as soon as they called me on the phone, as soon as Maxwell called me and said that, you know, this is what's going on, I get this weird chill, because yeah. it just doesn't sit right. So the first thing I start asking myself is who all knows about what we do there and what our schedule is like and stuff like that. And if we, we have a shooting schedule, usually there's a bunch of people in and out of there to prep leading up to it, and then we shoot something there, and then that's it. Until we announce something else, there's no fixed activity. Of course, Mark deflected with the classic, who else could have done this? When all the evidence points to you, just look confused and say, I wonder who else could have done this. Works every time. Except it didn't really work because the story still didn't make sense. Last known place was there. Said he went there. Met a guy. The girl wasn't there. Met a guy in the garage. In the garage? Apparently. 
Okay. Those Can you tell things. me? What, what does it explain to you? Tell me what you're thinking. Well, it explains the foreign padlock. If he switched it out or something like that, that makes sense. Who switched it? Whoever this guy is. Well, he didn't switch anything. He went there and met, met somebody there. Yeah. Okay, but that's what I mean. Like, whoever he met there. Yeah. Because I don't know of anybody else that has access unless they, you know, accessed it themselves, pretty much. So your lock was totally gone off there. Yeah. Okay. The latch was still there, but a different padlock there. So anybody could have come along with a set of bolt cutters, cut yours off, put their own on, right? That still doesn't give them access to the garage because there's still a deadbolt, right? Yeah. This guy indicates to his friends that he arrived, met a guy in there, the girl wasn't there, got a call from her later. Okay. Was going back to the garage. And that's where the cold trail goes. Mark just continued to play dumb, and the police didn't really have anything outside of a story that didn't make sense. So eventually, they had to let him go. And I say eventually because Mark continued to talk to the detective about everything he could think of. More about his movies, about his first marriage, about his credit report, about his mortgage, about the article he wrote about online dating that he didn't actually write. He talked, and talked, and talked. Within a few days, homicide detectives were assigned to the case. They called everyone that knew Johnny just to make sure he wasn't holed up somewhere, and when they couldn't find him, they started the process of getting a warrant to search the garage. Detective Bill Clark didn't want to wait, so he called Mark and asked him if he could take another look. Mark was great at faking the cooperative guy who didn't know what was going on, so of course he agreed. It would look suspicious if he didn't. He ultimately agreed to meet an officer and give him the keys and sign a consent form so they could go in on their own. When Mark stopped at the 7-Eleven to meet the officer, he got in the passenger seat and told him that he had more information. First, he told him that his car was broken into on October 8th, two rent payment receipts for the garage, a check, sunglasses, and some change had been stolen. Of course, there was no report that backed that up. Then he told him that on the 12th, he and Jen returned home to find the front door unlocked, but Jen was sure that she locked it. He said that nothing seemed to be missing. Then on the 15th, he was bringing some cleaning supplies to the garage, and when he stopped to get gas, a guy approached him and offered to sell him his car for whatever cash he had on him. Supposedly, this guy had met a wealthy woman who was going to take him on a three-month vacation, and then when they got back, she was going to buy him a new car. He told him his name was also Mark. The car just happened to be a red 2005 Mazda 3 hatchback. When Detective Clark was told that Mark had just admitted that he had bought a red car off a guy for $40 on October 15th, his response was understandably, what? While Mark was still sitting in the patrol car with the officer, detectives asked if he would come down for another interview. He agreed and drove his car, a red Pontiac Grand Am, down to the police headquarters. While Mark was on his way to police headquarters, the Mazda was being picked up by the forensics unit. 
It had been moved down the street to a friend's house. The VIN number was run and it came back as being registered to Jonathan Altinger. Officers also walked the neighborhood and talked to people who lived in the houses around the garage. One couple had seen Mark outside of the garage changing the padlock on the door. A different couple said they saw a sporty red Mazda in the driveway to the garage on the 14th. They knew it was that day because it was the day of the federal election and they walked past the car on their way to the polls. Mark couldn't have bought the car on the 15th if it was already in his driveway on the 14th. At police headquarters, Mark spent two hours writing out his account of the man selling him the car for $40. Then Detective Clark interviewed him for another couple hours, having him tell him the story multiple times, one time in reverse, just to see if the story would change. It changed. Finally, he decided to just confront Mark and see how he reacted. There's something else I want to tell you, Mark, and that's that... There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that you're involved in the disappearance of John Altinger. No doubt in my mind at all, Mark. Why? As I said, Mark, there's no doubt in my mind that you're involved in this disappearance. I just want to get to the bottom of this because this is not going to go away. It's not going to leave you, Mark. I don't understand. I'm going to explain some of the reasons to you. But you do understand, because you know what I'm talking about. You're involved in this, and unfortunately, something got carried away. Something got carried away with this guy. I mean, talking to you here tonight, you seem like a decent guy. And I think that something happened that night that maybe you just didn't have total control of. And I'm here to get to the bottom of it. Because it's not going to go away. This is going to stay with you. And we need to clear this up here and now. We need to clear this up tonight. You need to tell me the truth about what's going on. What happened with this fella? Mark's lack of reaction spoke louder than the few words he had said. Detective Clark said that an innocent man would usually get outraged when he's accused of a crime he didn't commit. They would immediately deny everything because they knew they were innocent. Mark sat there and said almost nothing. He was good at coming up with lies on the spot, but they were usually to make excuses to his wife about why it seemed like he was cheating. This was a specific event that he needed to stop and think about to formulate a story that would explain away the detective's suspicions. It needed to also match the evidence that they were finding. It seemed that he wasn't able to come up with anything. I just don't understand. Well, what don't you understand? We have a fellow who's missing. We know he's been to your garage. We've talked to all the neighbors now. You know, the neighbors saw you changing the lock about a week, week and a half ago. Neighbors watch. They see all these things. Little things that you don't realize. 
We know the lock was changed long before the 15th. Yeah, when you get there on the 15th, you tell me, oh, that's your lock on there on the 15th. It's not till you go back with the policeman. Last night, that you notice, or you say. So that's a lie. That's a lie you told me. When you gave your version of events to Detective Tabler last night, your version of events was different than what you told me today. What you wrote down was different than what you told me in this room. What you told me in this room when I first came in was different from your final version of events. You've changed your whole story. All kinds of different lies. Detective Clark tried to get Mark to tell him what happened, and there were moments when the wannabe serial killer seemed to be struggling with the idea, but he ultimately remained silent. When he told the detective he was ready to get a lawyer, Clark knew that he was done, but the interview was not a loss. Mark had told him during the interview that he had the keys and license plate to the Mazda, Johnny's car, in his own Grand Am. Again, not having enough to arrest him, they had to let Mark go. In the elevator on the way to the main floor, Detective Clark turned to Mark and said, quote, I know you killed that guy, and I'm coming to get you. It's just a matter of time. End quote. When they got outside, Detective Clark told Mark that he was seizing his car. Mark had given him reason when he admitted to having Johnny's property in it. He told Mark, quote, I'm seizing your car, and I'm taking it right now. End quote. When Mark said that he needed to get something out of his car, Detective Clark responded, quote, You're getting fuck all out of that car. End quote. Mark said he just wanted his cell phone, but Detective Clark said, quote, You get nothing. End quote. Mark handed over his keys and walked off down the street. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. Investigators got warrants for Johnny's car, Mark's car, his garage, and his house. They found the script to House of Cards, his short horror movie. They noticed the similarities between that story and what seemed to have happened to Johnny. They searched his car and found a hunting knife with blood on it, a duffel bag with bloodstains on the handle, and a bloodstain on the carpet in the trunk. In the garage, they found blood everywhere, especially on the floor. 
In his house, they found a hockey mask painted gold and black. They also found a fake gun in a box by his desk. On a bookshelf, they found a travel guide for Costa Rica, a stack of blank postcards from Costa Rica, and a book titled Crime Scene, How Forensic Science Works. On his computer, they recovered a deleted file that was titled SK Confessions. When they read it, they were floored as they read Mark recount, in detail, how he lured a Johnny to his garage and killed him. They were also surprised to see that he had tried this plan before and the victim got away. On October 31, 2008, the DNA results came back from the blood stain in the trunk of Mark's car, and it was Jonathan Altinger's. Soon, all the DNA results would come back the same. Mark had been hiding out at his parents' house, so the police pretended to be investors interested in funding day players and set up a meeting for the afternoon of October 31st. Mark, being completely delusional, thought he was finally going to make his next movie, even though he was the main suspect in a murder. As he walked to a nearby coffee shop, contracts in hand, multiple police cars pulled up and ordered him to get on the ground. Huh, kind of like he had done to Jill. I wonder how that felt. Mark Twitchell was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. When the clothes he was wearing when he was arrested were analyzed, both his shoes and belt had blood on them. It was a match to Johnny. On November 2nd, Jill got a call from a friend telling him to check the news online. The article was about a man who had been lured to a garage and murdered by a man in a painted hockey mask. In the article, they mentioned that they had evidence that another man had been lured there but got away. The article had a picture of the hockey mask, and Jill said his legs got weak when he saw it. It was the same mask the man who attacked him was wearing. Jill dropped what he was doing and headed to the police station. But I tried a few times, didn't I? Uh, did you get him? No. Did you hit him? No. Couldn't. And did he hit you? No. What about kick you? Uh, he tried, but he, he, I, I swerved as well. So I. Like, is I this an all out intense battle, or is it like. No, that's the thing, is like. This is the whole thing. This is what I'm thinking. While I'm doing this, this guy, he had. If he was more professional, he could have killed me right away. Like right when I walked in, I didn't see him. He could have hit me over the head with a a, a bat, a, a baton, or anything. Yeah. He could have knocked me unconscious right away. And I I don't know why he did that. His whole plan was to use this taser thing on me first. And I was stupid on his part. But he had many chances to kill me. He never did. I'm facing this way. He pulls the gun out again. And for some, I think because I, I grabbed the gun, somehow we maneuvered. We were um, struggling again. And I'm trying to break the gun, right? So we're struggling. And somehow I ended up this way again, struggling with this gun. And he's here back at the door, okay? So Because I just remember the door being there. And then I'm just trying to rip break this gun because this is <laughs> I know it's plastic and I know if I what's he doing he, he's yelling at me because he doesn't want me touching his gun and so then uh, I wouldn't let go obviously but and I had a hold of his arm his other arm just in case he tried to punch me in the left but he never did and so we're just struggling I'm just it, you could tell it's just weird that because he if it was a real gun he would have fired it or whatnot he never did. He had nothing, and he didn't. He he never. Just wasn't professional. It was just like 
it was maybe his first time. That's how I thought of it. Mark had been interviewed after his arrest, but wouldn't disclose the location of Johnny's body. The following day, he was questioned again, but refused to answer any questions until he was able to talk to a lawyer. A call had been made to legal aid, but the lawyer hadn't got back to him yet. After Mark was able to finally talk to a lawyer, he completely shut down. When investigators tried to find out where Johnny's body was, Mark wouldn't even acknowledge their existence. Their next tactic was to put him in a car and drive him around the city, trying to get him to point to where the remains might be. They knew that Mark had dumped the remains in a sewer because he wrote about it in his journal. It said, The sewer, of course, how obvious. No one ever goes down there. The body would rot away completely before anyone ever discovered the bones, and by then it would be way too late to identify the person. I chose the eastern suburb of the city to dump my waste. It would be practically a ghost town with most of its residents either having commuted to work in the city or otherwise occupied and away from their homes. The housing in this part of my world was also older, done back in the 60s and 70s when neighborhoods were not so congested, so there were alleys to be had. Newer neighborhoods have the homes grouped so close together with attached garages facing the street that alleys don't exist in new city plans anymore. With each bag, I sliced the tops off and turned them upside down, letting the pieces fall into the sewer, hearing the splashing sounds as they touched down. I crumpled the bags up, put them back in the trunk, and closed it. I got back in the car, fired her up, and took off. My total time there couldn't have been longer than three minutes max. He refers to Johnny's remains as his waste. Mark sat silent in the car. He had gone from chatty Cathy in his first few interrogations to putting on an act like he was bored by the investigator's effort to locate Johnny. Then they took Mark to the garage and pointed out exactly how the neighbors saw him change the padlock. So, how did you lock this gate up to make him go in the overhead door? What did you do to lock it up? Is that the uh, the lock you bought at the uh, store there? I showed you the Walmart receipt. Combo lock, you put it on here, you put it on the front. I think it has locked up. That ball works fine. See how when you're installing this, See that? Take a look at those windows right there. See how easy it is for the neighbors to see who's doing it? See that? See that there? Beautiful view coming from the neighbor's house, either side. See who's doing this. Too easy. Way too easy, Mark. Bring back any memories? You want to tell us where the body is now? get this over with, get you back to the station. With Mark holding firm with his silence, he was taken to jail and locked up while he awaited trial. Soon, though, Mark's image was on the front page of every newspaper, and he became the most famous prisoner in jail. This meant that he had to be moved to the top floor of the jail into a more secure area. It was for his own protection, but Mark was still upset at the move. Like many narcissistic criminals, Mark didn't like the way he was being treated. 
He was upset for being interrogated for long periods of time and was upset that he was arrested with no warning. Yeah, Mark, that's usually how arrests happen, you dope. I find it fascinating that someone could lie in order to lure multiple people to a garage, tase them or beat them with a metal pipe, and then kill one of them, following that by chopping their body into little pieces and dumping them in the sewer. Then that person complains about their treatment after being arrested based on minor inconveniences, and they see absolutely no irony in that. While Mark was awaiting trial, Jess hired two lawyers. One was specifically to be a legal advocate to separate her from her husband's crimes. The police were no longer able to speak with her directly, they had to go through her lawyer. The second was obviously to handle the divorce. By mid-November, the divorce was filed and not only did she demand full custody of their daughter, but she also requested a restraining order against Mark. Eventually, she moved away from the area and changed her name. Police scoured the city for Johnny's remains. They started with the sewer manholes in the eastern part of the city that matched the description in SK Confessions. Then they checked all of them. Then they expanded their search, but they were unsuccessful. By October of 2009, Mark had been denied bail and the judge canceled his preliminary hearing. It was usually used to determine if there was enough evidence to proceed to trial, but the judge determined that the evidence was so overwhelming that it was unnecessary. Detective Clark met with Mark to give him the news and ask him again to tell them where the remains were located. Mark got angry and declared his innocence. He told the investigators that they were wrong and everything would come out in court, though he wouldn't answer any of their questions about what he had that proved his innocence. Mark was one of the many, many criminals who thought he was smarter than everybody else. Even after making stupid mistake after stupid mistake and being caught fairly quickly after deciding to become a serial killer, so much so that he wasn't actually a serial killer, he was caught so quickly that he will never be considered a serial killer. After all that, he still thought he was the smart one. He wrote to someone while awaiting trial, quote, They are convinced they see a train. From their perspective, they can clearly identify the tracks, the wheels, the grill, and even the window with an engineer in it. But back up a little and soon we see that the reality is not a train at all, but a painting of a train sitting on an easel in the middle of a studio. End quote. There was more than enough evidence to convict Mark. The detectives weren't worried about that, but they wanted a body so there was absolutely no question about Johnny's death and Mark would get the maximum sentence. Also, they wanted Johnny's family to be able to lay him to rest. Finally, on June 3, 2010, Mark asked to speak with detectives. When they sat down, he put a single piece of paper, folded in half, on the table and pushed it toward the detectives. On the paper was a printed-out map, and Mark had written, Location of John Altinger's Body, at the bottom of the page. He had drawn an alley onto the map and marked the location of the sewer manhole with a red circle. The location was just outside the area that the police had searched. When they pulled up the manhole cover, a medical examiner went into the sewer and found a human torso, a pelvis bone, a kneecap, an intact tooth, two tooth fragments, and buckets that contained lots of small debris including smaller bones. The bones showed signs of cutting, and the DNA was matched to Johnny. The trial began with Mark pleading not guilty. 
Mark's defense faced an uphill battle. Mark claimed that he did in fact kill John Altinger, but he did it in self-defense. Oh wow, a self-defense claim? Mark, you're a genius. This is what would come out at court? Why wouldn't he just tell the investigators it was self-defense? He spent years in jail refusing to tell the detectives who thought he was guilty of murder that he killed Johnny in self-defense? It makes no sense. He claimed that SK Confessions, which he said the SK stood for Stephen King, not serial killer, was a work of fiction based on fact. He said that he had set up fake dating profiles to lure men to his garage, but it was basically so he could write a more convincing story. He claimed that he created something called Maple, which stood for Multi-Angle Psychosis Layering Entertainment. He explained that he wanted his short horror film, House of Cards, to be believed as having really happened, turning his movie, which would eventually become a book and a website, into a real-life urban legend. His original plan was to use online dating sites to lure men to his garage where he would then convince them to play along and claim to have been attacked. Then, for some reason, he changed his mind, and when the men showed up, he actually attacked them, but just to scare them. Then he assumed those people would go online and spread the story, making the film seem real. Okay, but wouldn't someone probably report the incident to police? I know Jill didn't, but if that was supposed to happen to Johnny, maybe he would've. Or maybe the third guy. Mark seems to think he's some sort of genius, but he has some of the stupidest ideas I've ever heard. He said that after Johnny arrived at the garage, he explained to him that there was no Jen, and he told him about his maple plan. This enraged Johnny, who attacked him, and he had to kill him out of self-defense. Yeah? Did you also dismember him out of self-defense? Did you try to burn his body out of self-defense? Did you dump him in the sewer out of self-defense? How about this? Did you break into his house, pretend to be him on social media, lie to his friends and steal his laptop and printer out of self-defense? Get the fuck out of here. The prosecutor pointed out that, if his story were true, he hadn't planned to hit Johnny with the pipe. He just happened to write about his plan to use a pipe, go buy a pipe, wrap tape around it to act as a handle, and place it in the same place that he had lured Johnny. It was just a huge coincidence. And the set of field tools that were meant for a hunter to dismember and process an animal carcass just happened to be there, ready for him to dismember Johnny's body. Another convenient coincidence. Mark claimed that that was, in fact, the case. On April 12, 2011, Mark Twitchell was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. The worst part of that is that's the maximum sentence this narcissistic piece of garbage can get. They chose not to go through another trial for the attempted murder of Gilles Tetreau because even if they won, it wouldn't increase Mark's sentence. In Canada, 25 years is the max sentence even for multiple convictions. No matter what, he would be eligible for parole in 25 years. Hopefully his parole is never granted, especially since his journal revealed that he had plans to kill more people, specifically people that he disliked. One was a former boss that he didn't get along with, and the other was the ex-boyfriend of a woman named Tracy. Tracy had been Mark's girlfriend in college, and they had started having an affair shortly before the murder of Johnny. 
During the trial, the jurors were given a copy of SK Confessions to read along as it was read into the court records. Some parts were removed because they were deemed too prejudicial for the jury to hear. One of those parts was a self-diagnosis by Mark, written a few weeks before he killed Johnny. It read, I go by so many names, so I will leave tags out of it. I am simply me. I am different from most people. I suppose I've always been different for as long as I can remember, but didn't truly understand the true depths of it until recently. Not until an inadvertent intervention by a family member woke me up to the truth. The truth that I'm a psychopath. For example, I am a pathological liar. I've habitually lied my entire life, and despite my incredibly well-adjusted and healthy family life and upbringing, it never stopped. I've always apologized but never meant it and never corrected the behavior. I lie to my wife and my family on a practically constant basis. Sometimes I do this to protect them, to shield them from knowing the truth about what I really am, and sometimes I do it for my own gratification and there's no reason to it at all. My whole life I've always just done whatever the hell I wanted without any consideration for anyone else and it's never bothered me. I don't experience things like remorse or guilt. Occasionally I mentally kick myself for making an idiot move or decision, but it's not the same thing. My wife has a very small picture of what goes through my head. She still thinks I have remnants of compassion or honesty when none of these things remain. I put on a show for her benefit. I've always had a dark side. I've had to sugarcoat for the world. I've always had to pretend to be more social than I want to be, and it's worked out well for me. Despite the disorder, I'm still a somewhat upbeat, outgoing person. Until lately, I used to think my laid-back approach and total lack of fear of the unknown future was due to my disposition and outlook on life. This may still be partially true, but I cannot deny a major part of it is also the fact that I just don't feel what others feel. I'm not quite sure I'm capable of love. It was edited out of the document because Mark was not an expert who had the ability to provide a psychiatric diagnosis to anyone, even himself. That being said, he seemed to be pretty accurate with his diagnosis. Mark filed an appeal claiming the media attention surrounding the trial tainted the jury. He also tried to say there was sufficient evidence to raise reasonable doubt. He wrote that, quote, the Crown's theory leans on too many fallacies of logic and contradictions in reasoning to make sense. This must be corrected. End quote. Well, his nonsense certainly wouldn't add any logic, that's for sure. Nine months after filing the appeal, working as his own defense, he withdrew it. He knew it was of no use. Mark Twitchell thought that he had the ability to live one life as a visionary director and another life as a serial killer too talented to fail and too smart to ever get caught. The reality is, he was just a filmmaking failure that turned out to be an unoriginal monster. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help.
If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22 or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. No. Good boy. Keep your hat on, pet. Why? We're playing dinner at the North Pole, remember? So we need to wear our big warm coats inside. When it comes to food or heat, many families will face impossible choices this Christmas. Please support the St. Vincent de Paul annual appeal. Donate locally or at svp.ie. Thank you.